Hello, I'm C. Stephen Ellis, novelist, and this is my podcast, The Writer's Mind. Here we will discuss all aspects that relate to the craft, business, and creative side of writing. For more information or a transcript of this podcast, please go to my website, www.cstephenellis.com, and that's Stephen with a V. So focus your ears because it's time to step inside the writer's mind. Hi, this is C. Stephen Ellis, and welcome to The Writer's Mind. This is episode 10, and today we are visiting with Anne Block. Anne is a professional tour guide, and she is also writing her memoirs. So stay tuned, because it is an interesting interview. But first, I'd like to talk about writing and technology. When you think about the great authors of the past hundred years, and I'm really talking about the people before 1970, they either wrote using a typewriter or they wrote longhand and had someone transcribe it to the typewriter. And while it wasn't really a thing, because it didn't have a name at the time, I'm sure most of them, if not all of them, suffered in one way or another from repetitive stress injury. But what were their options? If they were very successful, I imagine they would have hired a secretary who was proficient in stenography and dictated their stories to them. But if they're anything like the writers I know, they would have eschewed this because they feel that the link between mind and pen is sacrosanct. However, in the last 25 years, technology has made writing easier. It's easier to write because we don't have to focus on every word. It's easier to edit, giving us the ability to search and replace words, move paragraphs, and it's even easier when working with an editor. If you use software that has some kind of markup built into it, it's a simple click to accept or deny an editor's suggestion. But there's still that RSI, which has increased because we not only spend time at our keyboards writing, but we pretty much spend time at the keyboard doing everything else. And let's not get started on those of us who use game controllers. So what's there to do? Once again, technology comes to the rescue in the form of dictation software. It works, and it works well. Nuance's Dragon Dictation has freed our fingers from the keyboard. That is, unless you have Dragon Dictation for Mac. Now, I've read all the books, and I've listened to all the warnings, but I scoffed. Scott Baker, the author of The Writer's Guide to Training Your Dragon, Using Speech Software to Dictate Your Book and Supercharge Your Writing Workflow, cautioned against Dragon for Mac. It's buggy, and it doesn't have the same feature as Dragon for Windows. He recommended that we Mac users create window partitions on our computers and use it to install Dragon for Windows. Did I listen? No. Did I pay attention to the dictation user groups on the web and on Facebook when they related the issues that they've had with Dragon for Mac? Of course not. I am a technical guy. These people just don't know how to use their computer, I reasoned. Plus, the software has been updated multiple times since the dates of their warnings. Well, 
as much as it pains me to admit it, they were right, and I was wrong. Today, I will be spending valuable writing time with Nuance Support trying to solve the latest issue with their product. I will actually do my best to convince them to change my license from Mac to Windows, and I will invest the additional $150 it will cost me to create the Windows partition on my Mac. And while I do this, I will curse myself as I should be writing and should not be technical support to the tools I use for writing. What about you? Have you had any issues with Dragon or any other software that saps your writing time? Let me know at cellis at cstevenellis.com, and that's Stephen with a V. I look forward to your thoughts, and we'll read the email on my next podcast. Now, sit back, and let's step into the writer's mind and listen to Anne Block. Hello, and today the writer's mind welcomes Anne Block. Anne Block is a very interesting person. Anne is a professional tour guide. And I don't know about you other writers out there, but a nice character would be a professional tour guide. I can imagine all kinds of mayhem happening uh, to a <laughs> professional tour guide. But she's not just a tour guide. She is also getting ready to write her memoir, which is tentatively titled Travels with My Wendy, Two Lesbians on the Loose. Well, I can't wait to hear about that. And then she also just finished taking a writing class in Tuscany. Now, why you have to go all the way to Tuscany to take a writing class, we're going to find out. So the first thing we're going to talk about is we're going to say hello. Welcome, in to The Writer's Thank Mind. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so how does one become a professional tour guide? Basically, this one just decided to. I'd been traveling with my Wendy for a number of years and I started offering my services when we lived in San Francisco as a kind of favor to my panic-stricken friends who were having their company coming to visit and had no idea what to do and I always seemed to know what was happening in town. Well, yeah, yeah, but you did not like grow up as a little girl and say, you know, when I get big, I want to be a tour guide. <laughs> no. So how how do you get from, you know, uh, girl from in Wynn, your 20s? Arkansas? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I grew up in a little farming town in Arkansas. I didn't have any, I, I didn't even know there was a travel industry, of course, but my grandmother uh, kind of set the stage for travels in my family. When Route 66 opened in 1930, uh, she took my dad and his little brother and her mother and set off all by herself to travel from Arkansas to the far west, to what were then known as the Indian Territories. And of, (laughs) of course, my dad and his brother never forgot that trip. The, the, um, pancake breakfast that they were forced to have so they could last through the day. And that spirit of my grandmother has continued throughout my entire family. My parents traveled widely. They took us with them sometimes and sometimes not. My brother uh, was in the Peace Corps in the 60s and is a Latin American history scholar now. And um, I just got the bug from an early age. 
Oh, well, that sounds fascinating. And so just really in your 20s and in your 30s, you were just traveling? In my, yes, in my 20s, I was in school. I got a degree in um, anthropology and elementary education, which is a very good combination, but I never worked in a classroom. <laughs> I'm too scared to be left alone with 30 kids. Uh, really, I, I had this concern that I would have favorites in the class and it just didn't sit right with me. I thought, well, how can I be good to some and not good to others? So I did other things instead. And uh, one thing led to another. I lived in, I moved to San Francisco just to visit a college friend of mine and I stayed. And when I was 30, I met Wendy and she had traveled quite widely in Europe and in India and Japan with her family. And in 1984, we took our first trip to Europe, my first trip to Europe together, and it just completely blew open the world to me. And Wendy had gone before? Yes, several times. Okay, so she was your tour guide. She was, she uh. was. But it was great to have this new adventure together. We went places she knew and places she didn't. And it just started our adventures together. Oh, I mean, it sounds beautiful. I mean, this is really, your memoir is really going to be a love story, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is, especially now, because Wendy has dementia. And so when I'm writing, and I have to say, I have already started my book, uh, I was writing a chapter this morning about a time when we had to sleep on the beach in Crete. And um, we met a nice German boy who was kind of our guardian. And anyway, um, I was thinking how now I can't talk to Wendy about that. Now I can't get her memory of that trip from her. So I'm just having to do my best to to evoke the spirit of Wendy as we made our way across Europe in 1984. And it's really kind of sweet and sad and exciting all at the same time. Yeah, Alzheimer is probably one of the most evil diseases out there. So sure. I, 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 my sympathy with what you're going through. Thank you. So let's talk about being mm -hmm. a tour guide. Okay. So uh, when you go on tours, you, you have a minimum amount of people that you take on a tour? Well, I have two kinds of tours that I do. I do tours here in L.A. and around the United States. And those tours can be for from one to 50 people or so. But when I take a trip to Europe, I always take a small group, kind of like a dinner party. So the group size of my European trips would be eight to 10 at the most. I will be leading a trip to the Venice Art Biennale in Italy this November. And I have eight people on that trip and we're gonna have a great week in Venice. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun. When you take people on a tour, do you have the itinerary already built out, the hotels to go to, the places you're gonna eat, all of that is taken care of ahead of time? Yes, yes. Uh, when I go on a European tour, all of that is taken care of. When I do a tour for people who come to visit here in L.A., I customize it to, to fit the client. So in other words, um, 
whatever they're interested in doing, we do. And then I throw in the things that they don't even know are here as we travel along the way. And that's really my, I have to say that's my gift. So like if I wanted to do a Walt Disney tour, you could take me to the original house or or think places like that or certainly places and where movies were filmed and things like uh -huh. that i could do that and i could also take you inside walt disney concert hall because i've been a docent at the music center for more than 20 years and i i kind of know all the secret places well that would be a fun tour all by itself thank you yeah the reason I started my tour business actually is because when Wendy and I moved from San Francisco to LA, we moved here because of the movie business. She was working behind the camera. I was working in front of the camera and we had made friends some years past with Lily Tomlin when she came to San Francisco and did really the first celebrity benefit for the AIDS epidemic. So we got to be really close with Lily and Jane. And after we moved here, uh, Lily told me that she'd been invited to the Berlin Film Festival. And I had been in the film festival in a couple of movies myself and had been there a couple of times. And then once just right after the wall came down and I was so excited for her, she said, well, I don't think I'm really going to go. And Wendy and I said, what? It is the most exciting city in Europe right now with the wall down. And she said, well, but, you know, I'm afraid I'll get stuck at the festival and I won't get to really see Berlin. And I said, well, I'm making you a list right now. And she said, no, if you come with me, I'll go. So that was my first hired gig. Wow. <laughs> Now I have to circle back though and find out what did you and Wendy do in the industry? Oh, I was an actor. Wendy was a script supervisor. So she worked between the cinematographer and the director and made notes. So every day her notes went to the editing room and that's actually how a movie gets made. You know, they, the editing can't be done without the script supervisor's notes and timings and comments. So she had a very detail-oriented job, which was perfect for a Virgo. And um, when, she, when she herself felt she was slipping at the end of the day with tallying up all the timings, I thought she was just, as usual, being too modest. But she knew something was going on. And so about a year later, it was true. She, she had the early stages of a kind of dementia called frontal lobe dementia. So she doesn't have Alzheimer's, which is the good news because Alzheimer's kills you, but she does have frontal lobe, which has now deprived her of speech and just her living in her own little world. She's still in there. She still knows me, but she no longer can talk about things. I understand. But anyway, uh, so, back to Berlin. Okay, go ahead, Berlin. <laughs> so when I went to Berlin with Lily and Jane, the first thing that happened is I made a connection with somebody who was German, who could provide the, the uh, transportation, who could drop everything and just take us and with my help show us the most fabulous time in Berlin not necessarily connected with the film festival. 
So I discovered really that I have a kind of knack for making these things happen. And when I got home, Wendy said, listen, you have a skill. There are thousands of people like movie executives, people who work 90 hours in this town, and you know, they're always having company. So why don't you market your skill as a tour guide and kind of reveal the things about the city that people really want to know, not just the famous things, but kind of under the radar things which is what I specialize in, to tell you the truth. So when and you that's say, what I did. well, what, what, is, what would you consider to be under the radar? Well, I would consider under the radar um, a private gallery, somebody's house, the Watts Towers. You know, it's like the Statue of Liberty for a New Yorker. How many people do you know in L.A. who've never been to the Watts Towers? Uh, there are... <laughs> Hello. Hello. I see a tour in our future. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, people want to explore a city and uh, be with a local who can show them, oh, their favorite out-of-the-way coffee shop. When is the last time you you were at Clifton's Cafeteria, which is now known as Clifton's Cabinet of Curiosities, which it is. I love revealing the beauty and the the kind of splendor of downtown which as you know is having a whole resurgence of life but the old and the new exist together so how do people uh want to when when you become a tour guide Uh how do you decide what those little secret places are going to be well really i take my cues from the guest as I said, I personalize each tour. So no tours, uh, no two tours are the same. They're really designed one-on-one tailored to the guest. So let's say we're going to, um, we're driving down Wilshire Boulevard to do an Art Deco tour. And suddenly we pass the beautiful uh, street lamps that art installation at LACMA. But directly across the street from there, did you know that there's a a huge section of the original Berlin Wall? No, I had no idea. Exactly. And it was given to the city of LA. And by the way, you know, we're sister cities with Berlin. We became sister cities in 1967. So it's our anniversary. But anyway, there's this big hunk of the Berlin Wall. And then we pass... The La Brea Tar Pits. Well, some people know what that is, but very few do. And they are always really surprised and thrilled by what's there because most people don't realize that L.A. got to be a big city because of the oil industry, not because of the movie industry. So by the time the movies got here, the oil industry was booming and this city was growing by leaps and bounds and... um, So all of these things kind of combine to give people a really full and rich experience and understanding of our big old city. And I love doing that. Well, now, I imagine that doing tours, going to uh, Europe and even going, Uh you know, taking L.A. tours, that things get a little unpredictable. (laughs) They do. Uh, Do you have any fun stories about when things didn't necessarily go as smoothly as they were supposed to? Well, yes. Um, 
No names. I have kind of a sad story and kind of a fun and happy story. Which one do you want? Well, uh, let's go with the sad story first and then the fun okay. story. I was leading a trip to Paris for a group of ladies to do some pre-Christmas shopping and just kind of have the experience of the city itself. One of the things I specialize in when I take people to a new place is to go to a different neighborhood every day. So they get a big overview and not just the center of town. Right. So one night we went to a very unusual restaurant called Le Du Magot, which is not only um, the name of, uh, of what they call the slang for newspaper, but it's the two ducks. And um, long story short, at the end of the meal, we stood outside and she just let me have it. She said, I told you I wanted to go to such and such kind of place. And this seems so ordinary to me. And uh, I'm very dissatisfied. And I was so shocked. And everybody else was too, because we'd had a wonderful time. Well, as it turns out, this particular lady had only been a widow for about a month. Whoa. She had decided to stop smoking on this trip. And really, despite the fact that I, I didn't know exactly what to do, she was clearly dealing with some things. But as a tour guide, it's my job to make sure that people have an experience or get along or you know, come together. And these were six women who didn't know each other well. And I, I saw the danger that was at hand and everyone else was kind of taken aback too. Like, oh no, is this gonna be a problem? So I called my mentor in Los Angeles, Barbara Deutsch, and I said, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And she said, well, I do. You have to sit alone with this person and just let her talk, just let her vent and don't say anything. Let her go and say everything she has on her mind and then see what happens. So that's what I did. And it was harsh and she was mad. And um, as the longer we talked, the more it came out how sad she was and how much she missed her husband and how she'd always planned to do this trip with him. Oh. And at the same time, my own father had died recently. And so suddenly we had this connection of loss and sadness. And we just turned it around together. It was really wonderful. Everybody was so relieved. We had a great time. She felt heard and understood. And um, I'm not sure she started smoking again, but I hope she did. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a terrible loss, too. Oh. So, and the funny one? Oh, the funny one was a couple of years ago, I lead this trip to the Art Biennale in Venice, Italy, every other year, which is when it takes place on the odd-numbered years. So we had this wonderful... Uh, day, morning, and then beautiful lunch outdoors. The weather was magnificent in November. And you have to take one of the boats from Venice over to the island of Murano. 
And so after that, we were going to go on another little quick boat trip to the island of Burano, and we took the wrong boat, and it was my fault. And so we ended up going the long way around, and we got to Burano, and we had a dinner engagement, so we needed to just turn around and come back. And there was an enormous line at the boat dock, like hundreds. And one of my very smart people said, listen, let's just hire us a boat. And that's what we did. And we had the time of our lives getting home in our own launch. You know, there were, I think there were eight of us and we were singing and we felt so smart and um, we got back in plenty of time for our dinner date. And it was just one of those happenings that seems like it's going to be disastrous and turns out to be more fun than it would have been with my plan. So, so that's, just Providence. That's story. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That sounds great. All right. Well, I want to move on now. I want to talk a little bit about um, what it is you do. One of the things you do in terms of writing is you release a, a newsletter. I do. Now, I have to confess that I'm not a monthly newsletter person, but my web designer is on me about being more, um, how do you say, proactive. And I've recently written a blog that's about um, my summer, my summer of loving LA. You know, it's the summer, the 50th anniversary of the summer of love in California, especially in you too. <laughs> Obviously I was, I was a kid. I was uh, in, in the summer of LA, 67. Yep. Yeah. I, I was only, I was only eight. Ah, well, I was not quite old enough myself to really take part in it. But, you know, there's been a, a wonderful, there was a wonderful documentary made about the music festival in Monterey, which is called Monterey Pop. Sure. It was made by a very famous documentarian named uh, B.A. Pennebaker, or maybe it's D.A. But anyway, they had a screening recently at the Cine family on Fairfax Avenue of the 50th anniversary. And he came and he came with one of his cinematographers. So we not only got to see the movie, but we got to hear about the making of the movie from the makers of the movie. And it just really got me going about how much I love where I live and how much there is to love about L.A., and so I'm devoting myself to this summer of loving L.A. by discovering new places, showing old places. Um, yesterday I was passing by a local uh, city park, and it's called Queen Anne's Recreational Center. And underneath the banner, I mean, on the banner underneath, it said, uh, summer camp, whatever. So I decided to take that as my theme. The Summer of Loving L.A., Camp Whatever. So when you write, though, how do you do it? Do you, do you have a set time during the day when you uh, want in to the write morning, your blog? In the morning, oh, I write my blog with the help of my wonderful friend who's a, a great editor and writer herself. And her name is Julie Logan. And so Julie and I get together, we brainstorm, she kind of writes out the skeleton, and then we edit it, 
and then I find a photograph to go with it, and then I send it to my web designer, Bolin High, and he puts it out, and so that's how I do my blogs. I get a little help and inspiration from talking with people I love to collaborate with. Okay, well, I actually think Julie Logan is going to be a guest on this podcast sometime oh, in the future. Oh, you're going to love her. So looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, so then you went and you did a, I know you're getting ready to, as you say, you've even started writing your uh, memoir. I But have, you took yeah. a class in Tuscany. I did. Which is, my first question is, why do you have to go all the way to Tuscany <laughs> to take a class? And was it in Italian? Was it in English? What did, what okay. did you learn? What was your experience? The name of this class or this week-long workshop was called Topography of Memory. So it suited my, my notion of writing my memoir perfectly. And also it's taught in English by two Americans, one of whom is a writer herself and the other one is an artist. And they're a couple who've been leading this kind of trip to this particular place in Italy for about six years. And um, I went because Tanya Catan, who's the writer, had led a workshop that I was in many years ago. This is a little bit more history, when I had breast cancer and I was recovering from breast cancer and she led a one day writing workshop. And she was so funny and so exciting to just hang around with. And when I heard that she and her girlfriend, Angela, Angela, I'm sorry, Ellsworthy is her last name. Angela Ellsworthy and Tanya Catan were leading this workshop on memory and memoir. I thought, well, this was almost a year out. I, I have to do it. And so I applied, you know, they didn't just accept me. I applied and I uh, passed muster and I was chosen as one of the participants. So there were six of us. We stayed in a villa on an organic farm. The villa is several hundred years old and the farm has been in this family's existence um, for several hundred years. It's called Spenocchia, which is the original owner. And it includes forest and meadows and cows and chickens and pigs and eggs and everything grown organically. And so we stayed there for a week and the cooks were wonderful. They cooked three meals a day for us. We wrote in the morning, we made art in the afternoon and every day before breakfast, we took a silent hike either in the forest or down into the valleys. Um, so it was the perfect setup to really dig in and get creative. And I'm really grateful to having had the chance to do it. Well, what was the takeaway? What do you think you learned from that experience? Well, I learned that it's important to write badly and then you can go back and edit it and fix it, but just keep that pencil flowing. I'm a person who writes, and this was part of our workshop too, to write freehand, not to be composing on the computer. It's too tempting, you know, to try to edit yourself as you're going along on the computer. Um, and this is a lesson that I had learned many years ago when I took a writing class here in LA with Terry Wolverton. And I was in her women's writing group for many, many years. 
And I've since recently gone back to working with Terry and she's just a total inspiration herself. So I'm in the groove now. I wrote, uh, I wrote this morning. It reminded me of another time. Um, I told a story to my niece about the time Wendy and I arrived in Milan on the train and we had a date to meet these friends of ours at a nightclub and uh, we couldn't find a place to stay. So heck, we just went to the nightclub and we made friends with some darling little gay boys who were there and they tried to help us find a place to stay. But it was the um, International Design Fair in Milan and we had arrived in town with no reservation. So we ended up spending the night in the Milan train station at the far end from the waiting room because that was packed. And during the night, we could hear someone snoring all the way through the train station. It was built <laughs> it was built during the Mussolini era. So it had enormous high walls. It was made of marble. And I'm telling you, the best espresso I ever had in my life was when that coffee bar opened the next morning. And that day, we found a place to stay. Oh, I mean, that's a great story. I imagine <laughs> your book is going to be filled with stories like that. I plan for it to be because I have so many. Exactly. So your process now is to actually write longhand. Yes. And then how do you get it? I mean, do you have a set time? Do you write at home? Do you go to a coffee shop? Do you, where do you I write? I do write at home, but recently, especially since it's so hot and since there's so many distractions, I'm going to start going to my local branch library because I can sit quietly by myself without my phone or anything and just do some writing there. As you know, it just requires the habit of writing and writing and writing. So how is, does it go from the written word on the, uh, on the yellow pad to, to being into the computer? In print. Well, this is something that Julie Logan taught me. I will record my voice uh, reading what I've written and then it can be transcribed into print. And then, yeah. Do you use Dragon Naturally Speaking for that? Or Dragon for Mac? Oh, what a great idea, because I have Dragon <laughs> for Mac on, on my computer. Well, and, I'm here uh, to inspire if I can. Hey, listen, you're my guru now. So do you when, you, when you focus on writing and to help distractions, are you using any techniques like a Pomodoro technique or anything like that? I don't know what that is. So it's just, it's writing, uh, and it's not writing, it's just doing any task for, you know, uh, 20 minutes at a time. When you finish it, you finish the Pomodoro, and then you're allowed to take like a five-minute break, and then oh. you do it again, and it just keeps you on track. Pomodoro, like the tomato? Exactly. As a matter of fact, the oh. uh, the software, if you're going to be doing it for your iPhone, is got a big tomato on the... <laughs> so it's exactly I like a tomato. I love that. Thank you for that tip. Well, yeah, I, I'm on a roll now, huh? <laughs> you are. So, What's your um, book about, Craig? Oh, my book is... Uh, I have two books out right now. I'm working on the third book. It's a series of books. It's... Uh, about a young guy who wants to be a great chef and always seems to get in trouble and always uh, <laughs> works with his friends to get out of trouble, kind of a Scooby gang oh, kind of thing. Oh, this sounds great. So um, when, when you are done with this, uh -huh. how are you going to publish it? I don't know for sure, 
but I have some leads with people I know who also have already published and I am going to be asking for help and talking about it in my um, newsletters and in my blogs and on my website so I'm planning you know I'm my intention is to build interest as I go along so are you looking Maybe to... Maybe I'll publish, uh, you know, some of the chapters as I'm writing them. Probably a great idea to build interest. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, do you have a Facebook page? I do. Okay. So that's a perfect, perfect uh, ground for that. Do you... Um, are you going to... When you, when you get ready to publish, are you looking at traditional publishing and trying to get yourself an agent and get yourself a... Uh, publishing deal with you know one of the big five or a subsidiary of the big five or are you looking well perhaps I, I i that's been suggested to me as a good way to go so of course i'm not near that yet but in my in my preparation and my um planning for the next year or year and a half or so that definitely is going to be built in okay and then my last... Any suggestions there, Craig? Oh, I got lots of suggestions. <laughs> I can, we'll have I can... to talk more about that. Of course, I'm more than happy to. Uh, the last thing I wanted to discuss was our last week's guest on The Writer's Mind was oh, Kimberly O'Hara. Uh-huh. And so she had a very interesting, uh, very interesting interview. And I understand you're working with her. Yes, and I've I... taken three uh, workshops with Kim. And I do have the intention to start working more intensively with her because, you know, she she uh, provides the service of working with people to create a book from start to finish. So that's really interesting to me. And I'm working out when to start and uh, how to pay for it. <laughs> well, that old pesky little money thing. Yeah, that thing. So but in the you have you had a good experience with her in the three classes oh, that I you've taken? Oh, I love her. Yeah. She, her workshops are full of uh, inspirations and prompts for writing interesting things. And then her, her um, critique process is very, very smart and kind and uh, emphasizes things, ways you can go and also what you're strong in. So it's a way of... Um, taking in how to get better without getting hurt. Very good. Yeah. All right. So um, I always ask this as my last question, and that is, okay. uh, was there a question you wanted me to ask that I didn't ask? Um, oh, how did I get the name of my company, Take My Mother, Please? Okay, that's perfect. Okay. Well, as I told you, when I led... Um, the, the tour for Lily Tomlin to the Berlin Film Festival. I uh, came back. Wendy said, you should market this. And then it just came to me that if I named it Take My Mother, Please, of course, I'm kind of um, echoing the famous line from the comedian Henny Youngman. He used to start his stand-up routines by saying, Take My Wife, Please. So I thought Take My Mother, Please was a funny way to communicate what I'm, what I'm up to. And the tagline is, or any other VIP. 
So I figured if I could bring a smile to people's faces just from the get-go, that would be a good place to start. And in, in my early days, often my panic-stricken friends would be having their mothers come to visit. So it seemed to make sense to um, kind of tweak that idea, take my mother, please, or any other VIP. And that way people would know that I'm somebody fun and somebody they can trust. If you can trust me with your mother, <laughs> okay? Yeah. Yeah. So how do people get in touch with you if they want a tour? Well, they can contact me through my website, takemymotherplease.com, or there's a short version, takemymom.com. And uh, they can talk to people who have gone on tours with me. Uh, travel agents are really good referrals for me because they often have people coming to town or on their way someplace else who would like to see more of L.A. So word of mouth, website, travel agents. Email? And just look around and, and see what, what you're curious about, and I'm your gal. Do you have an email you'd like to give out? Sure. Take my mom at AOL.com. There you go. Well, again, this has been a wonderful time talking with you. Thank you for Thank joining you. the Writer's Mind. And um, this was a great interview. Thanks again. Craig, thank you. Appreciate it.